Good morning, everybody. Is my mic on? You can hear me? All right, so Joel said I am not special, and I, I think that's true. He did say that I am a preacher, and I will let you decide after this if that is also true. It may not be, but I, I am humbled to be here with you this morning and bring the word. And what an encouragement. I almost don't feel like I need to be up here after we just watched those baptisms. What a testimony of God's power. Now this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8. Starting in verse 40, so you want to go ahead and start turning there in your Bibles. Um, and when you have that, go ahead and stand up for me real quick, and we're going to read this together this morning. You're almost there. All right. I think that's good. All right, so read this with me this morning. Starting in verse 40, it says... Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that she, something should be given for her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what happens. This morning, I am going to be preaching on the power of Jesus towards the desperate, towards the dirty, and towards the dead. We're going to see that this power is a power that reveals the presence an eternal kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we are humbled before you this morning. We are humbled that as the last song that we sang, that your power, and that in your strength, that you would reach to us. As we come here after a weekend, after just a week of normal life, we come and we sit under your word and we realize that we do not even know how far down you had to reach. 
but that you humbled yourself even to come and to reach down to us. And we thank you that this morning that we get to sit before your word. And God, this morning, I pray that this would not be my words. We are not here to hear from man, but we are here to hear from you. God, your word says that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, and we pray that it would pierce our hearts because we are not here to come and to be the same. We are here to be changed. We are here to be made more into your image, Lord Jesus, and so we pray that you would speak to us. God, I pray that you would speak to me, that you would help me, God, because I am desperate, even as I preach your word. So in your name I pray, amen. Amen. So, on January 13th, 2018, that probably is not a date that most of you can remember in your minds, um, but it was a date that my best friend can remember. He was on the beautiful island of Hawaii on vacation with his wife. Uh, he was really having the, the trip of a lifetime when he was on vacation, right? Sounds, sounds pretty nice to all of us, probably. But while he was there, he was drinking his coffee at 8 a.m. that morning, and he received a notification on his phone that he thought might actually be the last notification that he ever received on his phone. And this is what popped up on his phone, and this message read, in all caps, by the way, and I quote, ballistic missile inbounds to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. And to make things worse, just to make sure, it then said, this is not a drill. Now, I don't, I don't know if you can imagine what was going through his mind at this time. I can't imagine what would be going through any of our minds if we all of a sudden got a message that said that. So my friend, when he heard this message, he ran to the front desk of the hotel. He was trying to figure out, am I the only person who got this? Does other people receive this message? And it turns out everybody on the island had received the same message. He's standing there trying to figure out where are we going to go for shelter. As he's there, a man had run out of the shower, literally wrapped around in a towel, dripping water all over everybody. People are freaking out. There was a bus driver in Hawaii, apparently, who was driving when he received this message. He had a bus full of people. He pulled the bus over. He got out of the bus, and he ran off the side of the road. He was gone. Parents stopped everything that they were doing when they received this message. They left their work, and they went to say, where are our kids? It wasn't until 38 long, long, long minutes later that they got another message that said false alarm. Now, but during that time, when all this happened, the thoughts of an incoming missile changed what everybody was doing. Everybody stopped in their tracks. They were facing a greater power, and when they were faced with this greater power, they realized that everything needed to immediately change. This morning, as we look at this text in Luke chapter 8, what we're going to see is what it looks like when you and I come into contact with a greater power. Who this power is for and how we will choose to respond to a power like that. But unlike this example, that was, a, that was a false alarm. But what can a true power do? Not to potentially destroy us, like my example of a missile, but a greater power that can come to save us. So this morning as we dive into the text, we're in the book of Luke, and a little bit of background to catch us up here. So the author of the text is Luke. Now, in the first four verses of chapter one, Luke writes that he had followed the life of Jesus closely, and he's actually writing to a man named Theophilus, and he says that he wants Theophilus to have certainty about who Jesus is. 
That's the same invitation to us this morning. That's why we're here this morning, to have certainty about who this Jesus is and his power. Now, if we look at the context a little bit closer to the text here, we're diving in here in Luke uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 40. But before that, if we look at the previous verses, there's a little bit of really important context here. Because what Luke is doing is he's actually going to combine three different stories together for us, and each of them is looking at the power of Jesus. So if you look at verses 22 through 25, what we actually see is that Jesus has power over nature. Jesus was just on the Sea of Galilee, and what we saw is that Jesus calmed a storm. He could even control the wind and the waves. So there's one aspect of Jesus' power. But then in verses 26 through 39, we see that Jesus has power over the spiritual realm as well. He actually casts out a legion of demons out of a man, um, and he actually then casts them into a a bunch of pigs who then run off a cliff. We see that Jesus is powerful over the physical. We see that Jesus is powerful over the spiritual. But now what we're going to see is a third act of Jesus' power. Now, as we look at these other two acts of power, we do have to realize something about Jesus and his ministry up to this point. Um, We see that there's never been anybody like Jesus, and this is what Luke is trying to show here. Matter of fact, people are still a little confused as to who this Jesus is. See, when Jesus actually calms the storm, his disciples who are in the boat with him, who are terrified, by the way, the question they ask after this is, who then is this? Who could this Jesus be? And then when Jesus cast the demons out in the other place across the sea, the people actually kick Jesus out. They say, hey, look, you cast those demons into the pigs. We don't want you here anymore. They ran off a cliff. We don't know what your power is like, but we want you to go. So people still don't fully understand the power of Jesus at this point. But now what we're going to do is zoom in and see how it is applied directly to people and then eventually to a greater source of power as we're going to see Jesus raise the dead. So... This morning, what we're going to see, just to give you a little bit of the landscape, is we're going to see the power of Jesus towards the desperate, the dirty, and the dead. This is a power that reveals his present kingdom that's here now, but also his kingdom that's going to go into eternity. So if you're following on an outline, here's going to be my kind of three sections that you can follow with me. First, we're going to see Jairus in verses 40 through 42, Jairus who is desperate before Jesus. Then we're going to see the bleeding woman who is dirty before Jesus. And then finally, we are going to see a girl who was dead before Jesus. Now, all right, quick aside, we're about to dive into a very familiar passage. Quick, quick show of hands. How many people here have gone to church most of your life? Like, grew up going to church? Raise your hand. Okay, cool. All right, I was just thinking about this the other day. Did anybody here, also show of hands, ever do like Sunday school lessons on a felt board? Anybody? Feltboard Christians? Okay, this is awesome. I was just thinking about that the other day. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, just ask somebody who raised their hand. But here's the thing. I'm talking to the Feltboard Christians for a second. And what I mean by that is I'm talking to the people who have heard this passage a hundred times, who have read this passage a hundred times. I think if you're like me, when I started studying it, your eyes can start to glaze over and you're like, all right, Andrew, like, you're, you're going to preach a sermon. I know what happens. Jesus heals that woman. He raises that woman. Now let's get on with our lives. But this morning, I'm asking you to lean in with me. Lean in with me here as we dive into this text. Both of you who have heard it a thousand times and you who have never heard this story, all right? All right, good stuff. So first of all, we're going to see that Jairus is desperate. Let's look at verses 40 through 42. Um, As we're looking at this real quick, um, so one thing to know about me is I work at an organization called World Relief. 
And as I work there, I work a lot with refugees. Uh, and so I've been following a lot the war in Ukraine. As I've been following this, um, there's, there's been a lot of stories that have come out. I'm sure that we've all heard um, some pretty heartbreaking things, right? There's a couple pictures, though, that have been very striking to me. And let me just tell you about two of them. Um, one of them, you might have seen this. It was a story and a picture of an 11-year-old boy. His name was Hassan. And his parents were so desperate because they thought that he might, you know, end up being bombed, that what they did is they sent him away from their house. Hassan was found 620 miles later at the border of Slovakia, a journey that he made by himself. When they found him, all he was carrying was a little, a little plastic bag with a phone in it, and his parents had wrote his phone number on his hands. Another picture that sticks with me that I was thinking is of a little girl. Her name was Vera. She was a two-year-old Ukrainian girl. And you can kind of see a before and after picture. One of her is just her looking like a normal two-year-old girl, right, playing with toys. But the other picture is a picture of her, and you can see her back. She's just wearing a diaper, and her mother had written her name and her birth date on her back. And you might say, why would a parent do that? The reason her mother did that is because she wanted to do it in case she was killed. And, she, her, and Vera was the only person left if she was going to be at an orphanage. Here's my question this morning. Can you imagine as a parent, if you look at your kids being so desperate that your only option was to do something like that? This morning, that is how desperate Jairus is. As we look at the, the text in verse 42, we see Jairus coming before Jesus. Now, the text says that he had only one daughter. So that means that she's the only one who can actually carry on the family lineage. Now, she's also 12, so we know that actually in Jewish culture at this time that she's, she's on the cusp of becoming a woman. And it's at this point where we're learning that her life is in danger. Now we know that she's dying. We don't know how long she's been sick. We don't know what else, what other treatments they've tried or for how long they've been trying to figure out how to heal her. But what we do know is that Jairus is desperate and he will do anything to try to find a solution to save his daughter. Now, Jairus, it says in verse 41, if you look at that, it says that he's a ruler of a synagogue. This means that he would have been a respected leader in his community. Uh, it means that he would have been a leader of a congregation, probably have some social and some economic influence. People probably came to Jairus for solutions, and now here he is at the feet of Jesus. And I, I want you to picture this scene real quick, because as Jairus is here, we see that he says in verse 41 that he fell. He fell at Jesus' feet. And he is imploring Jesus. So think about somebody in your own life, somebody that has a lot of status. Think about somebody, maybe it's your boss, maybe it's somebody who's very respected. Picture them on their face in a crowd in front of somebody else. This is how desperate Jairus is. Think about the scene it caused. It says that the crowds were waiting for Jesus to come back. What the crowds wanted Jesus to do is do what he was doing before. Before Jesus left to go to the other side of the sea, Jesus was performing miracles. He was teaching. That's what the crowds want to do. But Jairus makes a beeline to Jesus, and he bows down at his feet, and it says that he implores him in a desperate act of humility, but also a desperate act of boldness. And what we know here is it is a desperate act of faith, right? Now, what we see, though, is that Jesus' power in this midst is present, we see how the, the text continues, actually. It's kind of interesting. Jairus does this. He causes this big scene, and then Luke kind of just keeps moving. Um, it just says, after that, we don't get any words that Jesus says to Jairus. We don't get a response exactly. Uh, but Luke just says, as Jesus went. He just kind of continues on with us, right? But what we see, actually, 
um, if we go into Matthew's account, is something pretty radical, actually, wording around what Jesus does in response to Jairus. As Jairus bows before Jesus, um, what it says in Matthew is that Jesus rose and followed him. Jesus rose and followed him. Think about this. All the times Jesus is calling people to follow him. But what we see here is that in a response to the desperate faith of Jairus, Jesus follows Jairus to his house knowing that Jairus has already put his faith in Jesus. Now, as we're looking here, we have to realize, though, Jesus is present to Jairus, but also just Jesus is present around people. I think we take that for granted sometimes as we look at Jesus. If you look at verse 40, it says, now when Jesus returned. If you look at verse 42, it says, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Now, I'm not sure, you know, what, if any of you guys know what your personality test is. I know a lot of people like to do that. Like, what your Myers-Briggs test is, what your Enneagram is, like, how introverted or extroverted you are. You know, what I do know is that we don't know what Jesus' personality test is, right? Like, I'm sure somebody's tried to do that on the internet somewhere. It's probably garbage, so don't even look it up. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. What we do know, Luke mentions this earlier in chapter 5, Jesus likes to withdraw and be by himself from time to time, to spend time with the Father. And I'm sure that being pressed around by crowds was not a fun thing, right? Most of us don't like to be pressed around by crowds unless we're at a concert, maybe a sports game. But Jesus came, and he allowed people to press around him. He was present with his people. And here's the question that I want to ask before we move on. Why? Why would Jesus do that? Here's, here's where we get the answer. If we look at Luke, Luke, verse four, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 43, we see that Jesus came with a purpose. He had a bigger mission. And Luke 4, 43 says that Jesus said he came with a purpose to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He needed to be around people. When Jesus came, his first thing that he did when he entered into ministry, when you look back in Luke chapter four, Jesus is just starting his ministry. He walks into a synagogue. He steps in. He opens a scroll in front of everybody, and he reads this about himself out of the book of Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives who are recovering of sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are, at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen, when we talk about Jesus, we, when we look at him around people, we need to remember Jesus didn't just come to kind of live a perfect life and then, you know, kind of accomplish his mission and move on and stay away from people. Jesus didn't just come to hang out with people who had it all together. He chose to be around desperate people, around poor people. It says here around the captives, around the blind, around the oppressed. This is part of Jesus' mission. He came to teach. He came to heal. He spent time at parties. He spent time even letting crowds press around him and letting somebody like Jairus come before him. Why? Because Jesus' power is present for the desperate. Now, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, this, this probably resonates with us, right? We see desperate people all around us. Maybe we see a family member who's sick. Maybe we've been walking through somebody who's approaching the end of their life. Maybe we're walking with a friend who's struggling with an addiction. Maybe we're seeing in a neighbor who's being dragged down by a life on the streets. Maybe we see something on the news. We see desperate people all over. This is our life experience, right? This is the life that we live in. This meets us here. 
And if we're honest with ourselves, don't we see it in ourselves? We come here to church, and I think so often we can kind of try to feel like or maybe look like we've got it together. But the reality is we don't. All of us are desperate. So my question to you this morning is, are you aware of your own desperation? Because Jesus' power is present towards the desperate. Now, as we continue on, we're going to see Jesus before the bleeding woman. So look at verses 43 through 48 with me this morning. And we see Jesus before a bleeding, this bleeding woman who is dirty. Now, I want you to imagine for a second, um, I'm going to take us back two years. This is going to be kind of a stressful exercise, so just hang in here with me. I'm going to take us back two years when COVID had just started, when we didn't really quite know everything about what was going on. The hospitals were full. There are people who were sick. There were no vaccines. We didn't know very much. Do you guys remember that feeling? Can you guys put yourselves with me? All right, now I want you to imagine in that circumstance that you are in a large COVID bubble. Again, people remember COVID bubbles? You're in a COVID bubble. You're sticking with a group of people. You've all been really careful. You're washing your hands. You're not going out. You're not going to the grocery stores. You're ordering your groceries on Amazon, and then you're wiping them down with Clorox. You're doing everything, right? So you've got your COVID bubble, and you're going to have a party because you've been so careful. You've been so careful. So you're having your party. You're inside somebody's house. There's like 12 of you there or something. And then all of a sudden, somebody knocks on the door. And uh, you, you open up the door, and in comes this person. And you're like, they're kind of pale. They're kind of sweating a little bit. And, uh, and you look at them, and you're like, who is this person? And you soon realize that this person is very sick. You can kind of smell the sweat on them. They're, they're not clean. They're pretty dirty. You're, you're walking over. You just, you, you just reach your hand in and ate a chip, and then all of a sudden they cough on their hand, and they reach into the same bag of chips and, and pull a chip out. You know, later on that night, later on that night, I know, I told you this was going to be rough. Hang in. We're, we're almost done with this one. Later on that night, you know, they sneeze, and you feel like a, a small droplet kind of land on the back of your neck. This is a person who is dirty. This is a person who is unclean. This is a person who you do not want here with you, right? Because you guys have all done the right things, and this person obviously hasn't. And what are they going to do? They're going to infect you. This morning, this is the exact picture that we get of the woman who is now entering onto the scene. If you look at verse 43, it says, There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And she had spent all of her living on physicians, and she couldn't be healed by anyone. And you might say, Andrew, okay, it sounds to me like she's just sick. Let me just help us understand the fuller context of the picture here. See, as a, Jew, as a Jewish audience would read this, the first thing that would stick out to, her, to them is that she is dirty. She is ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. If you, if you look at Leviticus 15, you guys do not need to turn there. But according to Levitical law... A woman is impure for seven days after the beginning of her menstrual flow, her period. And after this, but what we see here is that this woman, who would have been, you know, unclean just for that, has been impure because she has had a discharge for 12 years. So she's been in a, a constant state of impurity for 12 years. This means that she couldn't participate in regular society. This means that she couldn't go to the temple to worship. She couldn't come join us here under that circumstance. She was outside. She was excluded, and she was alone. 
But it wasn't just that. She was also an infection risk for all of the people there. Because if you also stick it in Leviticus 15, read verse 19, it says that anybody who would touch this woman would be made impure. It goes so far as to say in the Levitical law that somebody who had this discharge of blood, even the chair she sat on or the bed she laid on would be made unclean. So her situation seems pretty hopeless at this point, right? She's dirty, she's unclean, she's ostracized, she's alone. Here she comes, but also we do need to realize that she is desperate. She is suffering physically, immensely, right? Um, It says that actually in verse 43 that she had spent all of her living on physicians. So we know she may not even have any money at this point. Mark's account says that she had suffered much under physicians and was actually getting worse and worse and worse. So she's been in this state of impurity for 12 years. She also has a painful condition. And this is something, by the way, that, you know, me as a man standing up here and preaching about, I can't even understand that at all, you know? But this is something that she has had for 12 straight years. She's not able to get pregnant. She's probably not married. She doesn't have any money. She's tried all of her options. And here she is. She's dirty. She's unclean and she's infectious. And what do we see in the text? She is making a beeline towards Jesus. Now, here's the thing. As she's doing that, we're saying, that is great. That's exactly where she should go. But I want you to understand that in the context, the Jewish people who would be reading this, they would be saying, what on earth is she doing? No, please keep her away. Jesus is the most holy person. He is literally the last person in the world that this woman should be anywhere near because she is unclean, right? So picture the scene, the crowds are pressing, she's wading through, you know, as she's doing this, she's making every single person that she touches, as she squishes through the crowds, unclean, Um, and then she comes up to Jesus, and it's no wonder that she approaches differently than Jairus. Jairus comes before Jesus and bows at his feet, but this woman, she comes discreetly. She comes silently. She doesn't say a word, just from behind, just to touch the fringe of his garment, And she believes in this Jesus, right? She believes in him. She believes he can do this. But at the same time, she wants to stay in obscurity because she certainly knows the purity laws. And she doesn't want to be the person who makes Jesus unclean either, right? But what do we see here in the text? It says in verse 44 that immediately, immediately her discharge of blood was healed. Now, what do we see about Jesus here? We see that Jesus' power His power in this circumstance, it exposes and it heals. Because at this point, it's kind of interesting. I I was reading through this text a lot, and at one point I kind of came to a point where I was like, okay, she comes, she touches Jesus, she's healed. Jesus is supposed to be going over to heal a sick girl who we know is about to die. So Jesus surely knows, okay, he touched me, she's healed. Why can't I just move on with my ministry, right? Like, he did the thing, he has another thing to do, so what are we doing with this all, right? And so at this point, Jesus, who has been wordless, he has yet to say a single word, he stops and he asks, who is it who touched me? And he says, power has gone out from me. Put yourself in the mind of every single person being here. So everybody denies it, right? Peter, who always has something to say, is is more or less saying, all right, Jesus, what's the big deal? Like, everybody's touching you. Let's just keep on going. Why is this a big deal? Now think about Jairus. By the way, Jairus is like here with Jesus. Jairus is like, wait a minute, we were going to save my daughter. Okay, Jesus, 
what are you doing? Don't we have somewhere to be? And then we're reading it and we're like, okay, Jesus, we know you know everything. Why are you asking who did this anyways? And then think about the woman who thought that she could touch Jesus. She's walking away. She's healed. And she's stopping in her tracks and she's wondering, man, I'm not going to get out of this without having to talk to Jesus, am I? But what we see is that Jesus exposes here. Listen, when we come to Jesus, we don't just come to Jesus to receive something that we want in silence, in isolation, and then just go our own ways. We see versions of a Jesus who is like this in many different ways. One of those is the prosperity gospel, right? Jesus the ATM, you put your card in, you get the money out, and you move on with your life. Jesus the genie, you come, you rub the lamp, you get what you want, and you move on. Jesus does not want that for us, not because, you know, we can just get off with it, but because he is so much better than anything that we think we can just get from him in obscurity, right? And Jesus will not move until she comes forward. Even though she's already reached out in faith, he is drawing her out, and this is an act of grace by Jesus. It kind of reminded me as I thought about this, as she realized that she's not hidden, kind of reminded me a little bit of the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden, and they fall. And what do they do? They hide from Jesus. And Jesus exposes them. He says, where are you? We serve a Jesus who exposes us, but he does it for our own good, right? And so often I think we, we, try, to, we try to hide things. We try to hide things from Jesus. Maybe it's our own personal sin. Maybe, you know, we think we can fool Jesus, I think so often we're like, we're like my cat when, when I get out a, a vacuum cleaner. Um, Amy and I have a cat. Most cats hate vacuums. Um, we turn a vacuum cleaner on, and as soon as the cat hears the noise, she, she used to have good hiding spots, but I think she's gotten a little bit dumber because now what she does is she hops up in the bed, and she kind of nuzzles under the covers, and she thinks she's hidden. She's like, all right, like, I'm so safe. I can't see anything. Like, the covers are over my head. But if you were to walk into our house, you just see a big lump sitting there on the bed. Like, it's kind of pathetic, right? Like, if she was an actual, you know, an actual prey in the wild, a predator would definitely get her first because, like, she's not hiding, right? This is us before Jesus. We think we're hiding before, from him. We think we can hide things from God, but we are exposed. And that is okay. We will see if, if we come to Jesus to find our rest, right? And so what we see is that Jesus heals her. He doesn't just care about her, phys he cares about her physical body. He sees that her body is wearing away. He cares about her suffering and pain, but he wants to go beyond that. He actually comes to invite her into something much more. And what do we see her do? We see her do two things here. We see her confess and we see her testify. This is what we do towards Jesus when we put our faith in him. We get to confess who he is. We get to confess what he's done. And then we testify and we do it in front of others. And this is to God's glory, right? This is the good news of the kingdom of God that Jesus is proclaiming. This is what Jesus is pointing towards. And so as she does this though, right, she comes and when we see her, she probably thought she was gonna actually be rebuked. She comes before Jesus and she bows down. And as she's confessing, as she's testifying, we see her verbalizing her faith. And what does Jesus say? Jesus does something powerful here. I want you guys to get the gravity of what Jesus says. Look at verse 48. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. 
go in peace. Jesus did not just want to heal her and send her on her way. Jesus wanted to bring her in to his family. Jesus calls her daughter. This is the only time, there's three accounts of this, and in all three accounts, it's the only time that Jesus calls one person daughter. The only time. And he looks at her and he invites her in. So she was not just a recipient of healing. She is a child of Jesus the King. She went from obscure to known. She went from dirty to clean, right? And my question to you this morning is, are you aware that outside of the exposing and healing power of Jesus, that you too are dirty? Or do we want to just try to get away into kind of an obscure, a distant relationship with Jesus? Is there a part of you this morning, maybe you're in another spot, maybe there's a part of you this morning that relates to this woman and you say, look, Andrew, you don't know what I've done. You don't know about my past. You don't know about my thoughts. You don't know about my actions. I think if I was to come to Jesus, I'm going to be the one who makes him dirty. Listen to me. You cannot do that, brothers and sisters. It is a grace that we are exposed in our own infirmities. It is a grace that we see our dirtiness so that as we come to Jesus, only he and his power can make us clean, right? The word that we use for this, just to talk about, you know, one of these big theological words that we use sometimes, we could use a word called imputation. What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to imputation mean? This is where Jesus, he doesn't just take our dirtiness. He doesn't just suck it up and then say, all right, you're on your own. Jesus takes our dirtiness and then he goes and he gives us his righteousness. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the beauty of this Jesus that we serve. So we see that Jesus was before the desperate. We see he is before the dirty. And now what we see is that Jesus also comes before the dead. All right, so this morning, I want you to raise your hand again. I'm trying to keep it interactive here. Raise your hand this morning if you would consider yourself a timely person. Anybody who thinks they're timely, all right, Tim Carey raised it pretty fast. All right, we see a few people over here. All right, a few people who are in the middle. Yep, okay, that's good. All right, everybody who raised your hand, go ahead and pat yourself on the back. Good job. Gold star, gold star. All right, perfect. That's great. So I, I realized when I, when I married Amy um, that different people in different families have different uh, definitions of what timely means, right? You guys can probably... <laughs> now, I need to be careful here before I go down the road and get myself in trouble like Montreal. But here's the thing. Um... Um, <laughs> here's the thing for, for me as my family like you, you needed to be five minutes early like five minutes early was on time and on time was late some of you guys can probably relate to that Amy's family was amazing to become a part of because they were just like we'll do the best we can and we'll get there when we get there right <laughs> so I, I fit in more with that all right so so in this circumstance though by the time we make it uh, please look here this morning at verse 49. By the time we make it here, it doesn't matter what your view of time is. It seems like Jesus, no matter what you think, is too late because this man comes and he says, your daughter is dead. Your daughter is dead. This feels a lot like the story of Lazarus, doesn't it? Where Jesus was going to go to Lazarus, and what did he do? He lingered, and he lingered, and he lingered, and we ask why, and we begin, we can be tempted to fear, as Jesus is going to say, don't fear, we can be tempted to disbelief, but what we know is that Jesus is always on time. Always. Jesus is always on time, right? 
So the person from the ruler's house, he gets it. He says, don't trouble Jesus anymore. He's obviously got more important things to do. But what we know is that Jesus is about to work the climax miracle of this whole set of acts of Jesus' power. And so we see now where Jesus says, do not fear, believe, and she will be made well. And so at this point, what we're going to see is that Jesus only invites a few people in. So who do we see goes in? We see that Jairus and his wife are invited in at this point in the story. Um, if you look, it says, when he came to the house, he let no one enter in except for Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Okay, so Jairus and his wife are coming in, right? Jairus has already responded in faith. Peter, James, and John, you might be asking, okay, what's, what's the deal with Peter, James, and John kind of popping in at this point? Um, a lot of commentators actually think here um, that this is actually a signal in Jesus' ministry that he's about to do something um, that reveals his divine identity, that something that big and powerful is about to occur. But do notice that there's a couple people who are excluded at this point, and I think this is important, because it says, all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that we sh she was dead. So we see that all of a sudden, Jesus is inviting some people in, but there's these mourners who you're like, okay, they're mourning. They seem sad. Now, why do they go from being sad to laughing at Jesus all of a sudden? Uh, you do need to understand a little bit of context, because in this time, actually, what people would do is you would hire mourners when you were when you're going about this whole period of mourning. And so that's what a lot of people think, that these people were hired to be mourners. They're there, and it says that they knew. It says they knew she was dead, and so they laughed. Now, at first, it kind of doesn't seem that unreasonable, because you're like, yeah, it's, it's kind of impossible, right? She is dead, so maybe, they're, maybe they seem legit. But on the, other, on the other hand, what we see is that they do not understand the power of Jesus. And what we're about to see is that it is actually more unreasonable not to put your faith in Jesus, no matter what the circumstances are that you see, right? Because we've already seen that this is the Jesus who's calmed the storms. We've already seen that this is the Jesus who's cast demons out. We've already seen that this is the Jesus who's healed the woman, and now we're about to see Jesus do something that nobody else can do. Now, what do we see? This is a desperate situation, right? Let's sit there for a second. Let's sit there right before Jesus takes the girl's hand. This is a desperate situation. It's so desperate, it seems impossible. But I also want you to realize that not only is this a desperate situation, but this is another situation where this girl ceremonially would actually still be seen as dirty. She would be seen as unclean. Numbers 19.11 says that whoever touches a dead body of any person will be unclean for seven days. So this girl, she is desperate, she is dirty, and she is also dead, and Jesus is about to engage all three. Now what we see, though, is unlike the woman who reached out to touch Jesus, Jesus is about to do something even more radical in this point. Jesus is going to reach out his hand to her, and he is going to grab her by the hand, and he is going to say, child, arise. And as he does that, he takes away her dirtiness but he does something even greater as he does that, does that, doesn't he? He takes away her very death as we see that she raises from the dead. Jairus had faith as he fell before Jesus. The woman had faith as she touched Jesus. And the dead girl, she just got up. She just got up because Jesus reached out to her and made her alive. Let me tell you this morning, no matter where you're sitting, this is our spiritual state before God if you don't have your faith in Jesus. 
Eric read this morning Ephesians 2.1, right? This was the second half of it, which is where we got our hope from. But we have to realize that outside of Jesus, Ephesians 2.1 says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Make no mistakes. That means dead. I mean cold. I mean out. No hope, no pulse. We are dead outside of a Jesus who is the only one who can raise us from the dead. And then he reaches down to us. And outside of that, he says, child, arise. And we respond and we just get up. That is what we do. This is how Jesus grows his kingdom. It is radical. It is so much more than something where we think that we have to have some sort of faith or some sort of goodness to manipulate Jesus. No, we respond to Jesus in faith. Anytime we have faith, it says it's a gift and it is a response. It is not of our own doing. Now we see, though, the reaction here is that the parents are amazed by this because she has just rose from the dead now. Just picture this for a second. They're sitting there. She gets up. And what does Jesus say? It's really interesting. He says, give her something to eat. I love that, right? It is the most human thing that somebody could possibly do. She was dead, and Jesus is like, she needs some food. I don't know how many of you guys get hangry or anything like that, but like Jesus is like, I got, I've got you. All right, so he cares about that. But I think this is actually really important. I think we can glaze over this sometime and like over-spiritualize it. I do want to say from one point, part of the reason why Jesus does this is it actually shows that he really raised her from the dead. She's actually alive, right? When Jesus raises from the dead, we realize Jesus isn't just a disembodied spirit because he goes and he eats with the disciples. He goes and eats fish with them. When she raises from the dead and is able to eat, that is showing she's really alive. We see it says here as well that her spirit returned back to her. Um, and there are some people who would doubt and say, no, there's no way Jesus could do this. You know, this is just, you know, this was made up, you know, that kind of thing. But what we see here is the text makes plain that she rose from the dead. And just in case you were doubting, you guys can, you guys can actually ask a doctor because the author of this book is Luke. And Luke was a physician and he is writing about this and he is saying she was dead, but now she is alive. But I think it also shows that Jesus cares about more than just you know, spiritually getting us to heaven. Jesus cares about us right where we are, right? Jesus cares about all the aspects of a person's life. And as he does that, as he heals, as he does all things, it's pointing towards an eternal kingdom. We don't separate and just say, okay, here's the spiritual over here and here's the physical over here. No, no, it's all under the lordship of Jesus because he cares about it all. And I think we need to hear that this morning because that actually informs the way that we serve other people. That actually informs the way that we love other people. We don't separate, but we go and we proclaim Jesus' name as we go and do what Jesus did. Are you guys with me? Good stuff. So my question to you this morning then is do have you been raised from the dead? Do you believe in Jesus' resurrecting power, right? It is for the desperate it is for the dirty, and it is for the dead. Now, there's an interesting thing, though, that I also want to point out, is that he does something really interesting, something even more interesting than giving her something to eat. It says that he tells them to say, not to say what happened. Now, you might be, at this point be saying, okay, now you're really confusing me, Jesus. Like, you just did the biggest miracle, and now you're telling everybody to just stay quiet about it. There's a few reasons that, you know, based off of my research that Jesus did this. One is that Jesus is not trying to get word out to where people are actually going to just force him to become king now. If you look at John 6, verse 15, there's a point where the people actually wanted to whisk Jesus away and force him to become king. But Jesus has his sight set 
on a slow journey towards the cross. That's not what he's going for. He's not going for fame. He's going towards the cross, right? He doesn't want to just be seen as a miracle worker or just a faith healer. He's not, his healing isn't a show, right? His healing isn't an attraction. This isn't an advertisement to say, hey, look how cool Jesus is. No, Jesus wants his healing to be tied to his mission, and his mission isn't just to heal for now, but his mission is pointing towards his healing and his resurrection for eternity. So my question to you this morning, as we begin to wrap up, is do you realize that outside of the grace and power of Jesus that you are desperate, that you are dirty, and that you are dead? Because here's the thing this morning. When Jesus works his power it demands a response. His power demands a response from all of us. We see people respond by faith in this passage, don't we? And that's encouraging. But listen, we see other characters in this passage as well. If you look at the crowds, it says they pressed against Jesus. They were just waiting for the next teaching or the next miracle. We see the servant from Jairus' house, and what we see about him is that he just assumes about Jesus, that Jesus is either maybe too busy or that Jesus can't do it. We then see the mourners at this point who says that they know what they see and they reject Jesus' power. My question is, what about us? What do we do in response to the power of Jesus? Because here's the thing, we're all going to have to give an answer. Now, I think sometimes we run into a few problems here, right? And I think what we need to see is, first of all, we need to realize that Christ's power is sufficient. How often do we not realize that? Because so often we, we, go to the, we go to fakes, right? We, we go to other sources of power. We, we go to things that, that aren't the real thing. We, we actually, you know, we say, let's, let's find a, diff- a different source. Maybe a source that doesn't demand so much from me. Let's find a better source of power that seems easier yeah. in this moment, right? We, we peddle in the cheap imitations of power. We, we peddle in knockoff versions, knockoff versions of Jesus. It'd be like if I went to Walmart and I, I grabbed a pair of sneakers a nice pair of white sneakers from Walmart. I came home, I got a Sharpie out, and I, I drew a little picture of Michael Jordan on them, like, you know, dunking and doing his pose and stuff. And I walk over to Tim Kerr and I say, hey, Tim, I got you a new pair of sneakers for your collection. You know, put, it, put them in a case down there with the rest of them. Here's the thing. You would look at me and you'd say, Andrew, that's crazy. That is fake. That is an imitation. That is cheap, right? But that's exactly what we do with other powers. We run to lesser powers. We run to lesser things than Jesus. We run to meaningless distractions. We run to sinful habits, thinking that they'll distract us for a while. Or we run to to social media, trying to increase our brands to look better. We run so many places before we run to Jesus, right? Not only do we go to fake sources of power, but we also try to, to manipulate power. We try to do it on our own. We try to look good, but at the end of the day, we realize that we cannot clean up our own dirtiness, right? Even in that day, there were other so-called miracle workers. Um, There were other people, like if you go back and do some research, there are a bunch of other people who are walking around claiming and saying saying to be doing the same types of things that Jesus did. You can read history books. You can read, there's a guy named Honey the Circle Drawler. There's another guy named... Apollonius of Tyana, they all had little cult-like followings, and what they would do is they go around and it would seem like they were healing people or they were helping people. But listen, the one thing that they didn't do is they did not raise anybody from the dead. We are, do not need to go running after lesser sources of power. We will be missing the whole point of what Jesus is calling us to. 
So first of all, we need to, first of all, we need to know that Christ's power is sufficient. But second of all, we need to know that there is an even greater power. It says that power went out from Jesus, but this morning, what I'm here to tell you is that Jesus is pointing to a greater power, and that is the power in his blood. This is the only way to make us clean. This is the only way that makes us clean and makes us alive, not only now, but also for eternity. Because here's something to think about. In this moment, I, I think sometimes we can be so excited that Jesus rose this little girl from the dead, right? It's a beautiful thing that he brought her back to life, but think about this. That little girl would die again. She came back to life this one time, but she would then go on to die again physically. There will be another day for this girl where people are mourning just the same, and Jesus knows this as he heals her, but the hope that we have as Jesus does this is he's not just doing that just to raise her so she can die again. He's doing that because he wants to raise her, and he wants to raise those who he has called into eternity. This is the hope that we have in a dead and dying world. This is what we are pointing towards in the power of the gospel. Jesus raised her. He had a sight set on the cross. Isaiah 64, 6 says that our righteousness before God is what? Filthy rags. Our righteousness before God is as filthy rags. Did you guys know that the word in Hebrew for filthy rags is the same as the word for a dirty minstrel cloth? Listen, even our best, our best works, the best that we have to offer before Jesus, it is just is unclean as the very dirtiness of that woman who came before Jesus. The best works that we have do not add up to, to that. As Ephesians 2, 1 said, we're already dead, so we're unclean and we're dead. Where is our hope? We have a death sentence before God. We are too dirty to come before him. Our only hope is in Jesus. I recently read a book called A Knock at Midnight, which I highly recommend if somebody's looking for a new book to read. Let me tell you a quick story from that real quick as I close. In this book, the author outlines his childhood. Or in this book, uh, the author outlines the childhood of a man named Chris. Chris had a childhood that was full of, of vulnerability. He had family members who died. He eventually decided to begin selling crack cocaine in order to survive. Now, as Chris was doing this, he was doing this out of a place of deep pain and out of a place of deep hurt. And he was eventually arrested. As he was arrested, Chris was uh, arrested over a possession of about three pennies worth of crack cocaine. And he was with the intent to sell. Now, Chris was offered a plea deal at this point, And the plea decision that he had was, you can, uh, you can take 14 years in jail and you can move on with your life, or can, you can choose to fight it. Now, Chris decided not to take the plea deal. He decided that he was going to be represented in court by a lawyer. But by doing this, choosing not to plead guilty, it allowed the prosecution to bring a specific and enhanced charge against him. And this charge that was brought against him was a charge that would sentence him to life in prison. Now, while Chris awaited his trial, he had four years to wait before he would see his trial. While Chris waited, he did everything he could to, to learn, to better himself, to grow. He learned history, he took classes, and he began working on a speech during those four years that he would eventually say before the judge. On the day of the trial, just imagine this, 
Chris stands up before the judge on the podium to represent himself. And he lays it all out before the judge. Chris ended up giving a 45-minute long speech. It was rhythmic. It was perfect. He had it memorized. He talked through history. He talked from ancient history through the Declaration of Independence. He talked about present times. He talked about all he learned from CEOs and entrepreneurs, from McDonald's to American Express. He talked about artwork and philosophy from Van Gogh to Descartes. He talked about his past traumas. He talked about his mother's drug addiction. He talked about his brother's suicide. He talked about his lack of financial resources. He talked about every single thing that he had done to make himself a better person. And he stood, stood before the judge talking about the social pressures and everything else that he was ready to come back. And he asked for a second chance before the judge. And as he stood there, after he set the mic down, after 45 minutes of a speech saying, I am ready to come back out and live in this world, the judge looked at him in the eyes and he said, I am sentencing you to life in prison. The judge had his hands tied. He only had one charge that he could give under the law. As a matter of fact, the judge was so moved by the testimony that Chris presented that the judge quit after that because he said, I don't even believe that this is justice in this situation. Listen, this is us. No matter, <laughs> listen, in our strength, this is us before the judge. In our own strength, we are just like Chris in this matter. It doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter how much we've changed or how much we've gotten it, it together. We don't measure up, and on our own, we are unclean, and our, on our own, we are guilty, and on our own, we are sentenced to death. And unlike Chris in this time, we are actually standing before a holy God and a righteous judge where we are justly condemned. And so our question this morning is, what is our response going to be to Jesus? Because he came and he points towards the power and the blood. That is our only hope. That is the only way in which we are made right with God. There is a greater power and it meets us in our desperation. There is a greater power and it meets us in our dirtiness. And there is a greater power and it meets us in our very death. Maybe somebody here this morning can resonate with these words with me. Would you be free from your passion and pride? There is power in the blood. Power in the blood. Come for a cleansing to Calvary's tide. There is wonderful power in the blood. Would you be whiter, much whiter than snow? There is power in the blood, power in the blood. Sin stains are lost in its life-giving flow. There is wonderful power in the blood. Would you do service for Jesus, your King? There is power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you live daily his praises to sing? There is wonderful power in the blood. Amen. This is where we find our hope. This is where we find our calling. So first of all, we need to go to the right source of power. We need to know that his power is sufficient by resting in the power of his blood. And finally, we have a power that we now live in and proclaim. As I close this morning, I want you to look at the next two verses. I didn't read these this morning, but if you turn to chapter 9 and look at verses 1 through 2, it says, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to go and heal. Listen, the story didn't end with Jesus just telling the people in the room not to say anything. Jesus immediately turns around and he commissions his disciples to go out and to do the same thing. 
That is what Jesus does to those who are his who have been bought by his blood. This is what he does to his disciples, to go out to meet the same desperate and dirty and dead and to care for their needs and to proclaim his kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is our calling this morning. If you are bought by the blood of Jesus, then as we leave these walls, we who are once, were once desperate and in great need, we who were once dirty, suffering and marginalized, we who were once dead in our own sin, we go to the same people. We go to people of all statuses, like Jairus, who are desperate. We go to those who are seen as dirty in our society, like the woman who is bleeding, to people who are suffering, to people who are vulnerable, to people who, um, who don't have it together. And my question this morning to leave you with is, who is it that you would never consider touching? Who is it that you would never consider talking to? Who is it that our society would never consider touching or talking to or going to? This is who we go to with the hope of Jesus. And then finally, we go to those who are dead just like we once were, those who are dead in their own sins. And as we love them, we point them not to our own power, but towards the power and the finished work of the cross that Christ shed his blood for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning. God, that you have come to us, that you have reached down to us in our desperation. God, that you meet us, that you are present. And we thank you that not only that, but that you come to us in our own dirtiness, in our own filth, that you know everything we've ever done and you know everything we ever will do, and yet you still love us, that you loved us while we were still sinners. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that for those of us who know you, God, that you have made us alive and that we are alive not only for now, not just to die a death now, but to be raised into eternity. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as we go from here that you would send us out, just like you sent out your disciples, to go and to proclaim the same message. It is in your name, in your power of your death and your resurrection that we pray. Amen.